Take the usual podcast hosting companies and you'll stay in expensive wonderland. Take the podcast of Matrix hosting and you'll experience a completely different world of whole podcast library hosting. Choose wisely at podcastmatrix.com. That's podcastmatrix.com. In the world of comic book storytelling, some tales are so massively important, they require being told outside of their normal ongoing titles. Whether revolving around a single character, a team of heroes, or encompassing the fate of the universe, these stories are as important as the rest of the books that come out monthly. The following is no exception. Bridging the gap between comics and audio entertainment media, my big fat poll list is proud to present a podcast mini-series. You've heard of the Avengers, the Justice League, the X-Men, Teen Titans, Guardians of the Galaxy, Defenders, the Legion of Superheroes, even the Watchmen. But what if we told you that there was another team of colorfully clad heroes that you've never heard of who are equally as influential to comic books and the industry as a whole? Who is this mystery team, you ask? Archie Comics' very own stable of masked heroes, the Mighty Crusaders. Join us now for part two of our special five-part miniseries, where we dive into the first revival of the MLJ characters with Mighty Comics, investigate the strange way they both influenced and were influenced by the early Marvel comics, and discover how the Mighty Crusaders were formed in a budding industry with too many superheroes. Welcome back, everyone, to our second episode of our five-part miniseries on the history of the Mighty Crusaders. I am your host for this special series, Dr. Impact, and joining me today is a newcomer to the My Big Fat Pull List podcast world. Joining me today is Monster Kid. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here and be, and be nice and kind. This is my first time. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> we don't like to give out uh, any ages of anyone that's on the show, but we will say <laughs> that Monster Kid is uh, is a little older than some of the rest of us on the show. You say what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now, having said that, we'll get into the meat of this episode here in just a second. But first, you know, this is your first time joining us here on the pull list and mm-hmm. and certainly in this miniseries. So just tell us a little bit about what got you into comics and how long you've collected or are you still collecting? Well, I am still collecting. Not, not as, as seriously as I once did, perhaps. There, there's too much to collect. So I, sure, I, I, yeah. I center it more on certain things. But when I was younger, I had a wide interest in many things, not just the comic books, and probably even before the comic books. My older brother and I, who, who used to uh, go to movies all the time and watch TV shows, and particularly science fiction, fantasy, horror, that was probably my first influence. So naturally, comic books would have to fit right in with that. And we started collecting those at very, very early ages of all kinds and all types. And I probably had a wider variety of interests at that time. Now, being much older and trying to collect just certain things, probably for nostalgic reasons. Mm, sure. So I'm, I'm uh, more of a... Uh, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none collector <laughs> who uh, likes certain things. And I have some very weird tastes, things that— Such that, as? Well, like, I don't know if there's anybody that collects the old Gold Key comic books anymore, but I'm really big on that, particularly the Tarzans. I was just saying, that's the old Gold Key movie stuff, right? And that, the movie yeah. and the TV shows. I'll, yeah. I'll try to get at least one issue of every TV series that ever existed. And that's <laughs> becoming impossible, but I'm trying to do that. But I, but I also had interest in pulps, even by, by the, the whole resurgence of the Doc Savage paperbacks. I, I got interested in pulps. And then, of course, I wanted to be an artist for a long time. I wanted to be a comic book artist. And then I wanted to be an actor. And then I wanted to be a, a writer. <laughs> and then a, 
uh, director, and uh, that's why I say jack of all trades, master of none. Sure. I tried to, to do a little bit of all of it. And nowadays, it's, it's more the nostalgic aspect of it. I want to collect the things that I remembered collecting way back then. Right. And they're gone. I got rid of them, and I, now I'm trying to find them again. I do want to talk about so what was your first uh, exposure to these Mighty Crusaders characters? Where did you first learn about them? Well, now we're going back a few years, actually. Uh, and even before the term Mighty Comics, I believe, they were, they were, of course, published by the Archie comic series. We're talking like the first appearance of, like, say, the Fly and the Jaguar. So we're saying 1959, 58, 59, 60. So I was under 10 when I first encountered these superheroes, buying them at my local drugstore about a block from my home, walking down to the, uh, the local drugstore and just discovering them on the old-fashioned revolving comic book stands. Basically, this, this era that we're about to dive into was mm-hmm. the era that you, that you discovered them. Exactly, yeah. 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 And at that, at that time, I was always interested in the more colorful superheroes, anything that, had, that caught my eye on that revolving stand. And, of course, I bought the DCs and, and the Marvel comics. And at that time, they weren't even called. I was going to say, it wasn't even it Marvel wasn't even yet, Marvel, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Buying, like, the original Fantastic Four and those at that time. But then on the stand, I would see something very colorful, like, like the fly. Here was this guy in this green and yellow superhero costume. So that had to come home with me right away. <laughs> and, uh, and the Jaguar was another one who was very, very colorful. I really didn't know who they were. I mm. didn't know anything about them. This was my first encounter with them. And uh, it was a very exciting time. It was like discovering. I thought they were brand new. You didn't have any older copies from older cousins or, or older brothers or anything of, of S.H.I.E.L.D. or I, Pep? I did not. Or... Now, that does not mean that my older brothers didn't have them. Maybe they had because I found some of their old comics in my basement. Mm-hmm. Most of those were mostly of the crime and detective mm. and genre. But they also bought a few of the superhero ones. So they may very well have had many, many of the older MLJ. MLJ, yeah. yeah, yeah. At that time. But this, uh, discovering these, was like, it was something totally new. I mean, I knew who Superman and Batman and, of course, the Justice League came along around that same era. But these characters, they weren't part of DC. They were their own breed, and this was, you know, really interesting. I used to regularly buy the Jaguar and Fly, and I'm trying to think. of that. You know, I, my first encounter with the Shield didn't come until much later, probably, and more in the... Uh, 63, 64, uh, whenever the Mighty Comics took off. Right, whenever they, they kind of had that pseudo-relaunch, which yes. we'll, we'll get into in more detail here yes. in a minute. So the Fly, really, more more so even yeah. than the Jaguar, the Fly really was, was probably first. your first right. introduction right. to right. them. Yeah, yeah, the Fly, and and pretty close behind that was the Jaguar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and of course, at that time, there. I didn't even know who Jack Kirby was, mm. but... Uh, there was something about the fly, that artwork, that captured my eye right away. That was going to be my next question. Did you get any of the, the I think the first four issues, I think, Kirby mm-hmm. did. Did you have the Kirby issues of the fly? I yep. had some. I yeah. know I did. Yeah. Uh, m- many of those have gone by the wayside over the years because as I got older, I uh, you know centered more on the Marvel comics and just started collecting sure, those. Yeah. So we'd get rid of everything else, sold all the old Dell comics, the four colors, and some of these that went by the wayside. Now I wish I would have. As you say, it's probably all the stuff that you're now trying to locate. I am and, now and trying to locate. <laughs> Refine, yes. yeah. And I had them at cover price, ten cents at first, and then twelve cents. <laughs> Without any further ado, then, because this is the era that that you were introduced to them, and you're here to talk with us about these comics as well. Let's jump right into it, and let's talk about the history of these comics. A Mighty History. Monster Kid, much like we did in our previous episode on the MLJ stuff, before really diving into the history of these characters, I do think it's important to lightly touch on where the country was culturally and socially and everything at the time, because I do think that a lot of this Silver Age stuff, not just from these guys, but from DC and Marvel as well, really comes out of what the country was was going through, where we were Mm -hmm. post-war and Mm -hmm. um, coming right off of the McCarthyism and and all of that stuff. The Red Scare that was going on. Yes. That was so evident in the 1950s. And then, of course, the um, 
the execution of comic books, you might yeah. say, yeah. In, in the 1950s. Dr. Frederick Wortham and right. the Seduction of the Innocent. Yeah. And, and all the monster comics and, and the sci-fi ones were the first to go. Yeah. And most of the superheroes disappeared at that time. Other than probably the big ones, Superman, well, think, Batman, Wonder Woman. And I think it, it might have been it. I think the, it yeah. was just the three of them that, that had the staying power. I don't, I, that was I'm, about it. I'm right. pretty sure that most of the yeah. Justice Society were gone. And, yeah. you know, MLJ had ended by right. 1947 right. or 48, and I think. Timely was pretty well, uh, had dropped all their superheroes. Yeah, from yeah, the early from era. the early era, yeah. But then by the late 50s, suddenly there was a rebirth. There was yeah. a resurgence in superheroes Yeah, that uh, probably started, of course, with DC, Yeah, I think, and well, then and I, with Marvel. And I think most people, you know, I, I don't know if you got it when it came out, but I think most people credit the beginning of that Silver Age with showcase number four. The first appearance of Silver Age Flash. Yeah, Barry right. Allen Flash, yeah. yeah. And that's really kind of where it starts, that idea of taking... Mm-hmm. This old character and mm-hmm. almost refurbishing him right. for a new era in an era that is also a very optimistic and almost pseudo innocent time. Right after the war was over and, and now the, the Korean War had ended for mm-hmm. us anyway, mm-hmm. we had left and you know, and we were going into that atomic age and that nuclear family age and suburban life was picking up and you know, all of that kind of combined into this supremely optimistic, hopeful Barry Allen Flash. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like a lot of the stuff at that time had that kind of slant to it. Right. And I think a big influence on, on a lot of that was the resurgence in the science fiction film mm-hmm. in that Sure, era. yeah. Like the, the drive-in stuff. And, yeah, yeah, the drive-in flicks and the, those that were appealing to the teenagers. Sure. Get them out of the house. Get them away from the TV. Yeah. And uh, science fiction, 3D films, a little resurgence in horror, but even the horror in that era was science fiction. Yeah, it was still giant monsters created by Mm -hmm. some sort of scientific method. So the comics picked up on this. There were so many comic books in that era, in the mid to late 50s, that were science fiction oriented about giant monsters coming up out of the earth or coming from another planet and attacking big cities because of the success of films like the original Godzilla Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and so on. So the monster movie, kind of uh, the science fiction monster movie, made way for these uh, this comic book era. I mean, if you, even if you look at like something like the Fantastic Four, if you look at its roots, a lot of that comes from the old science fiction films in that sure. era. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Four people getting together, making their own spaceship, and going up in space. I mean, there are so many movies along those lines in that era that, that copied. That altruistic and optimistic search for yes, yes. improvement and, mm-hmm. you know. A better world out there yeah, somewhere. Yeah. And then, of course, they all come back as superheroes. Of course they do, yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's important to know that because that that all heavily influences where comics were going. And, and The Flash, of course, was not the only one. DC had a lot of success with reviving Right, old characters in that vein. And of course, they all had more of a scientific slant. Green yes. Lantern had a ring yep. from an alien race as opposed to a magic yes. lantern, and Flash was scientifically yes. created. I mean, they all had much more of a, a realistic at that time. Or well, there wasn't a central enemy like no. in World War II. You had right, Germany you didn't have anything Hitler to, yeah. And the Nazis to fight. Yeah. In the 50s, you had the Red Scare. But then you had science fiction bringing in the mad scientists and the outer space yeah. enemy. Yeah. So you had to have heroes that could equal that. Yeah, that the unknown that. enemy mm-hmm. from, from beyond, yeah. DC was not the only ones that uh, that jumped on that. Archie Comics jumped in probably even before Marvel did in 1959 when they reimagined The Shield. They took that same mentality of taking the name of the character but completely doing something new a new origin a new secret identity new everything yeah Yeah, he had a new everything and that was in double life of private strong number one now this this origin folks you know you'll see some similarities here with uh, another character which caused a little problem legally for archie down the line but a dr malcolm fleming raises his son roger in a laboratory, essentially, experimenting on his brain and trying to create a superhuman. And when the funding is all almost pulled out from under him, essentially, the people are coming down on him, the government is trying to control the thing, he decides he's going to take his son and get him out of there. And (laughs) 
Of course, because it's 1959, while they're fleeing, they are attacked by communist spies. <laughs> and the car is run off the side of the road and down into a ditch. Now, Dr. Fleming dies in this accident, but miraculously, baby Roger lives. To be found later by two old farmers from the nearby area who find this baby mm-hmm. in this wreckage. I don't remember what the father's name was, but the mother's name was Martha, ironically. <laughs> and they, they bring this child home, and he grows up to learn that he has superpowers of flight and strength. Eventually, he and his friends stumble across this old wreckage that I guess had never been cleaned over the 15 years that he's been living with these farmers, who incidentally have changed his name. They don't know his name is Roger. Their last name is Strong, and they decide to name him Lancelot. And his name is Lancelot Strong. Good American name. A good American name. (laughs) And something else that that becomes a running theme, especially in these early Mighty Comics, I I don't know if it, it played so much in DC, but a lot of borrowing from mythology, a lot of borrowing from classic literary adventure stories. And so, you know, obviously Lancelot coming from the whole King Arthur thing and, and having ties there with this pseudo-noble sense that, that follows it. He and his friend discover this, this wreckage, and of course, look at that, there's a suit, and it's red, white, and blue, and it augments his abilities, and it allows him to harness electricity, and, and he's fast, and he can fly, and why not put it on? Because that's what you do in a 50s, 60s comic. You just put on the random suit that you find, and he becomes this superhero, and then enlists in the army and becomes a, a, a private who is consistently looked down upon by his, uh, by his superiors and his sergeants and because he's, he's never around, because he's always running off to be the shield. So obviously, you know, that didn't, didn't last too long. It's it, interesting that they didn't use the name The Shield in the title of the... Yeah, the I've, I've always wondered why they didn't do that, and I don't know if, if we'll ever have an answer. Or if there is an answer out there and someone knows it, by all means, hmm. uh, share it with us. Go to our website at uh, mybigfatpolice.com or find us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and, and let us know if you have an answer to why they didn't use the S.H.I.E.L.D. name in the title, because they refer to him in the book as the S.H.I.E.L.D. And it was owned by that company. And it was still owned, yeah, yeah. Private Strong was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. So it's it's interesting that they would be brought in to create yet another red, white, and blue hero Mm -hmm. uh, for a different company. You know, it didn't quite take off. They didn't have the S.H.I.E.L.D. name in the title. And D.C. probably came down on them. There's too many similarities there. With the uh, the Superman series. With the Superman myth, yeah, with right. the whole Which finding. Which is very interesting because if you take a look at Superman, his origin is almost a direct copy of Doc Savage. Yeah. well, and, came six years earlier. And really, I mean, if you really want to trace superheroes, mm-hmm. it, superheroes in general really do trace all the way back to Doc Savage. Now, Masked mm-hmm. Crime Fighters and Masked Vigilantes will trace further Even back. further back. But superheroes, as right. we know them, really do start with Doc Savage. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if Doc Savage begets Superman, and Superman begets S.H.I.E.L.D., and S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes. beget Captain America, <laughs> eventually you follow the line, you get to Private Strong. But and these, of course, Doc Savage's first name is Clark. And it's Clark, right, exactly. <laughs> but these similarities, I guess, were yeah. a little too much for DC to, to stomach, and uh, the book only lasted two issues before it fell. They, they, they didn't publish any more. Um, And incidentally, too, the other thing of note is that these were published by Archie Comics, but they weren't yet called Mighty Comics. On the covers, it still said Archie Adventure Series. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the inside of the books and you look at the the legal print, they are listed as radio comics. And they were radio comics for a great portion of that, that early run, even though there was never really a Radio Comics logo on the front. So it looks like it's just an Archie comic, because that's who, who published Radio Comics. But that's what this was under, was Radio Comics. And where did that term come from? Do we know? We do, I, no, I haven't been able to find anything about that. Some people believe that it might have been an extension in some way of the Black Hood radio show, that they pulled it from there because they had a show that was on the radio for a very short time in the in the 40s. I, I don't know if that's Good accurate point. or yeah. not. 
and I haven't been able to find anything. Again, another question that for for our audience, if you guys know where the term radio comics for this run came from. Now, we're not talking about the radio comics that came in the 90s and, and recently. That's a very different thing, and it's spelled with an X instead of uh, an S at the end. But these original radio comics, if you have an idea of where that came from, let us know. Yeah, Do- Double Life of Private Strong kicked it off, but it only lasted for two issues. However, in that first issue of Double Life of Private Strong was an advertisement for an upcoming book that would completely change Archie's publishing forever. And that was The Adventures of the Fly, number one, by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. And uh, and you said that that's where you discover these characters, was from that book. Yes. Which is a a great book if you ever get a chance, anybody gets a chance to read it. It's really fun. And kind of riffs on the the Captain Marvel Shazam idea, where it's uh, a young boy, Tommy Troy, who is an orphan mm-hmm. and is adopted by a mysterious wizardly couple, the Marches. And they're a little, at first, <laughs> they're a little overbearing and a little unlikable. And they, almost like Miss Hannigan from Annie yeah, of, yeah. of sorts, you know. A little Charles Dickens. A little Charles Dickens here. even, yeah. There was very, very much undertones of that, yeah. And one night he is sent up to the attic to clean the attic at the Marches' home and Lo and behold, there's this crazy ring stuck in a spider web that has a shape of a fly on it. And when he touches it, it opens a magic portal and outsteps Tehran of the fly people. I, I assume that's how you pronounce it, Tehran. Tehran, I, I don't know. <laughs> this kind of little bug-eyed-looking Yoda-like creature. And, uh, and he explains that his people used to, at one time, dominate the world. And through their greed... They eventually started to destroy their civilization, and half of their civilization fled to their new fly world where they live, and the other half stayed behind and morphed and mutated into what is now known as the common house fly. <laughs> and, you know, and these people, mm-hmm. the, you know, the ones that got away and survived, they all have giant bug eyes, and they've got the weird wings, and they're long and thin and lanky and, you know, very strange, almost monstrous and alien looking. So we didn't evolve from apes. We evolved We from evolved flies. from flies, okay. apparently, right. yeah. Right. Um, I that. And they've been waiting for someone pure that they could give their their powers to to be a, a champion for justice. Because in 1959, when this debuted, that's all the origin you needed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't need anything else. In the 40s, everybody was a cop or a scientist or, you know, a, a reporter who either had to scoop a story or someone else died and they had to get revenge. In the 50s and the 60s, before Marvel came along... You just had to be pure of heart and be given magic by an alien race or something mm-hmm. to be a hero, and that's all you needed. That was the whole origin. And it took maybe two pages to tell oh, yeah. the origin. Yeah, get it, time. get it over with and get going. Get into the yeah. action. Get him in his costume and get the action going. Yep. And that's really what, what a lot of these early books for Radio Comics, Mighty Comics at that time were. There's really not a lot in developing characterization. There's really not a lot in developing story. It's really more about what kind of crazy action can we do. Mm-hmm. And quite often in, in the fly book specifically, it's alien invaders. Almost mm-hmm. every issue. And every issue has about mm-hmm. three or four stories in complete stories. Mm-hmm. Unlike today where it takes three or four issues to tell one complete story. You know, then you would get three or four complete stories in one issue. Took five to six pages. Yeah. If you yeah. had a ten page story, that was an That epic. was a huge yeah, that was a big deal. And the other thing that uh, that the book also did was that it created what they called the widescreen angle. And basically, it was like a double-page spread. It would go across the whole top. Or, in some of the early issues, you would turn the comic sideways. Yeah. Now, that became a regular staple for a lot of fans in in the 90s, especially with Image Comics and, and those creators, the Rob Liefelds and Jim Lees and those guys would do that kind of stuff all the time. But it really kind of started here with Adventures of the Fly, number one, and of course, Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. And those first four issues, I mean, that's classic Kirby art. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's beautiful art to look at. Yes. Particularly his his minor characters. Yeah. The, the street life people. Yeah. The people that Kirby knew in the neighborhood, yeah, he grew up the people in. that he grew up with, very yes. much so, yeah, and uh, and, and that's a, a staple of Kirby's art. 
Yeah. Uh, little men with bald heads and yep. ugly faces and buck teeth and uh, or like Mr. March, you know, giant beards. He must beards. have he must have known a lot of guys with big beards because yes. if you look at his work, there are always guys with giant beards in his yes. stuff. Here he is, he's getting, you know, this ring and turning into a, an adult superhero, but that only lasts for four issues. Uh, after four issues, Kirby leaves the book. And I, and I want to say Joe Simon, too. I think they both left the book after so. issue four. Yeah. And with issue five, and I don't believe there's any explanation. I don't. It's one of the few issues that I'm missing, so I've never actually read issue five. So I don't know if there's an explanation for it. But in issue five, he's an adult. Mm-hmm. And they say that it has been about nine years since issue four. They, they do address that, from what I understand. Hmm. And he is an adult, and he is now a lawyer. Thomas Troy, the lawyer. Now, I didn't know you could become a lawyer in nine years, but evidently in the world of the fly, he was very, it's, bright. He was very smart, yeah. So starting with issue five on, he's an adult who just turns into the fly when he says the magic words, I wish to be the fly. And it changes the whole book. And, and this is, again, before Matt Murdock. I, I don't know. This might even be the first lawyer hero. I, I would have to do mm. a little bit more research on that. but Right. Uh, lawyer superhero. Yeah, lawyer superhero because with powers. Because people yeah. like Mr. District Attorney back in the 40s. Yeah, but that's a little different. This, yeah, yeah, they, they weren't were just um, ordinary crime-fighting yeah. lawyers. Yeah, they weren't masked heroes <laughs> no. of any kind. Yeah. By the time issue seven hits of The Adventures of the Fly, they finally bring back one of the classic Golden Age heroes. And this is not a reimagining like they did with The Shield. This isn't a refurbishing like DC was doing. The Black Hood makes his Silver Age appearance. In the book, he does not really explain where he's been. He doesn't say what he's been doing. But he teams up with the Fly, and immediately they both share their secret identities with one another. Because, well, if you're a superhero and I'm a superhero, then we're buddies. So this is who I am. As, as is the case for a, a book from that time. So this is, this is July of 1960. So technically, we still haven't even gotten the Fantastic Four yet. Right. DC is moving quite along, and you know the Justice League have premiered by this point, so they still have a plethora of superheroes, more than radio comics guys do. But, but the Black Hood has now appeared, and I, I want to say that the issue before that or the issue after that, The Fly even teamed up with Lancelot Strong. So they have started now connecting as well mm. by this point. Now, the Black Hood, the original, dates back to 1940? Yes, October of 1940 in Top Notch number 9. Uh, he premieres. And he you know, he was one of the, the big staples of that time. And like the rest, vanished when superhero comics went away at the end of the 40s. But yeah, he comes back and he's in his yellow outfit from before. The bizarre thing is that the gloves, his boots, and his trunks, because superheroes had trunks, everybody did back then, mm-hmm. are red. So he still has the yellow tunic, he still has the yellow tights, he still has the black hood, but the rest of it is red. And only for that issue, as far as I'm aware. And I don't know if if the colorists just didn't get the memo or if they were trying something different, but when I read that for the first time, that was a little off-putting as someone who's a fan of the Black Hood. Why in the world is he wearing red gloves? That makes no sense. (laughs) Well, red was a popular color for heroes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Especially probably because of the Flash, I would guess, Mm -hmm. because of the success there. And that color then eventually made its way to Archie and the radio comics with the Jaguar. In September of 1961, they debut The Adventures of the Jaguar number one. And the Jaguar was Ralph Hardy, who was an archaeologist and a zoologist in Peru, who uh, was attacked or happened to be there, I can't remember which, by a giant serpent of some sort, like a dinosaur-looking creature almost. He flees the, the monster and runs into a cave where he discovers the belt with the this this <laughs> actually it looks like a leopard print. It doesn't look like it's a jaguar print. It looks like it's a leopard print belt with a jaguar buckle. Mm-hmm. And when he puts it on and says the magic words, the jaguar, wasn't very difficult to come up with. Did the fly people leave this laying around too? Uh, they must <laughs> have, yeah, I don't know. I think I think later, when the characters were relaunched again in the 80s, I think they did try to go back and make some sense of that. But we'll get to that in a okay. future episode. As of right now, this was just a magic belt that he put on and he becomes the jaguar. And unlike the fly, who was a boy and turns into an adult, or Thomas Troy, who 
becomes the fly and wears the face mask and the goggles. The Jaguar followed more along the Superman route. When he was Ralph Hardy, he had slick black hair and a pencil-thin mustache. And when he became the Jaguar, his hair was a little more stylized and the pencil mustache was gone. And that was the change. But I guess if you could if you could believe that nobody found out Clark Kent was Superman, I guess they figured yeah. they'll buy into the difference in the Jaguar. It was a very naive time. It was, yeah. But, you know, it's it's also fun, too, because I personally enjoy that kind of stuff, especially in that era. I don't want to necessarily see that kind of cheesiness in a modern comic, but I love it in that era because it's part of the time, and that's, you know, that's part of the the approach that the creators were taking with things. And I think it's very important for that era. So I love that that kind yeah. of approach. So the Jaguar eventually started to connect with the fly without having met the fly. So they really started to try and build a cohesive universe without getting too bogged down in continuity. There wasn't a lot of continuity back then. That wasn't something that came heavily until Stan Lee, really. With the adventures of Jaguar number five, Catgirl... Arise. Now, Catgirl had premiered earlier in The Fly, and I don't know if you had ever read that particular issue, her first appearance in there. You know, I think I, I even had it at one time. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't remember. She was, I don't know if she was reincarnated or immortal, I can't remember which, but she basically was originally the model for the Sphinx in ancient Egypt. She can communicate with all forms of feline life of any kind. And she, of course, you know, runs into the fly, and then, you know, that was a one-off, a one-issue story. But she shows up again here in Jaguar and becomes a recurring character. Makes sense. Which makes sense, yeah. Bring the felines together. Yeah, right. And she starts off as his villain, as a foil for him, but he eventually saves her life in an issue, and I, I, forgive me, I don't recall the issue number, but he saves her life, and she becomes obsessed with him. And for much of the rest of the series... Whenever she would show up, she would orchestrate things in the hopes of the Jaguar falling madly in love with her because she felt like they were destined to be together and that he should never waste his time with his secretary. Oh, I can't even remember her name. Jill or Jane or uh, Ross, I think, or something to that effect. But she was basically... It wasn't Dolly who was his girlfriend when... Oh, no, no, that, no, was, that the was the fly. The fly's girlfriend in the when he was a yeah, young boy was yes, Dolly. It was Dolly. Yeah. yeah. No, this was not Dolly. This was, uh, yeah, I can't remember her name, but uh, she was drawn very much like Lois Lane at the time. Mm -hmm. And also, ironically, the Jaguar had another character that would show up, and I want to say her name was Cree Null, I think, and she was a, a serpent woman, very much like yes. Superman had. Mm -hmm. You know, Superman had Lois Lane vying for his attention and had Lana Lang in Smallville vying for him. Well, did DC complain about any of this? Particularly uh, evidently, Catgirl. Yeah, yeah, right. Over Catwoman, yeah, who was a villain, but who comes uh, obsessed with was obsessed Batman? with the yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I have not seen anything. I, I guess they only had issue with Private Strong because he was a hero, because it was maybe. a man. Maybe. maybe, maybe they didn't yeah. care. I don't know. It was around this time too. Actually, I think the same month as the first issue of the Jaguar. In fact, where. The Adventures of the Fly, number 14, gives the Crusaders universe its first full-fledged, well-received female hero. Hmm. Uh, they had a couple back in the MLJ era. I think Madam Satan was an anti-hero that rode the line, and a few characters like that, but uh, nobody of really any kind of major note until Kim Brand. And Kim Brand actually premieres in the previous issue, in issue 13. She's saved by the fly. And they become friends. And she was an actress, a Hollywood actress, mm -hmm. which is an interesting take, kind of a Wonder Man thing before Wonder Man came around. Mm -hmm. And the fly gets kidnapped. And so Tehran returns <clears throat> and gives her a fly ring, just the same. She's sent off as Fly Girl to protect him and, and help him. Mm -hmm. And they, they become a team. She's almost, I don't want to say sidekick, she's not quite Robin. It's more of a partnership between right. the two. Right. Was this, did this predate Hawkman and Hawkgirl? 
I don't believe so. I think okay. both Hawkman and well, I know Hawkman goes back to the forties. I yes. want to say Shiera goes back to the forties as well. I, I thought so. So yeah, I don't think I don't think they have that designation going for them. But what I do I do find interesting about Fly Girl and and Fly at this time is it seemed as if every adventure they went on and every almost every time it was an alien, every alien they encountered, whatever superpower they needed to defeat them, the writers gave them in that moment. They Every issue, they seemed to rack up new superpowers all the time. I think mm-hmm. uh, initially they just had the buzz guns, which would freeze people in place and temporarily paralyze them. Uh, and then eventually their wings could create windstorms, I right. think, right? Right. But then they started spinning cocoons made of steel around them to protect mm-hmm. themselves and they had right. they could glow bright as a firefly bug and they could burrow as hard as a termite mm-hmm. and i'm not sure why they were the fly if they could harness all the insects or why weren't they just yeah. some sort of insect well there were a lot more superheroes popping up and with with greater powers so they had to keep up yeah i'm sure yeah to kind of yeah to kind of mm-hmm. topple them but it, and, you know it's it's fun to watch eventually they started getting telepathy even and and they w- would communicate with the insect Lies world, do and that all the time. yeah, they do. Of course, they do, and they would communicate with each other telepathically. Mm-hmm. By 1962, Marvel had come around, and things were starting to change. And Stan Lee was bringing in the Marvel way of telling stories. Characters were real, or as realistic as we had seen at that point. Mm-hmm. People had real life issues, real life problems, and they connected more, and there was more cohesion to the storytelling. And the secret identity started to fade away. For some. Some, yeah. For some, it didn't It didn't become as important. And, of course, this is going to influence other books, and it, and it did affect the Archie stuff as well. They started having personal problems, too, although they weren't as well-crafted. No. It was things like Kim Brand, you know, struggling with the fact that she had to shoot a scene for the movie, but she's also a fly girl, and I, I don't know how to balance this life. <laughs> well, that's... I guess that's one way of taking what Stan was doing and, and working it. But, Movie uh, stars have that problem. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, first world issues. Um, but what they did do that was very interesting was in issue 21 of Adventures of the Fly, a number of the Fly's enemies gathered. And these were this was a time when, outside of DC, villains didn't reappear. Other than Catgirl, really, there weren't any recurring villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly not for these characters. It was always just uh, another space monster or a criminal or something. Well, in issue 21, the Spider, who was a recurring villain for the Fly, and who by this point was no longer dressed as a supervillain, he almost wore gray prison robes, and he was a <laughs> short little bald fat man, basically, who looked an awful lot like Lex Luthor at the time. <laughs> he gets broken out of prison by, um, I think his name was Brocker or something, B-R-A-K hyphen R or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he was an alien villain of the flies from a previous issue. This group of villains formed together to form the Anti-Fly League and go after the fly and fly girl. That was the best name they could come that up with. That was what they came up with, the Anti-Fly League, yeah. So, you know, obviously there, <laughs> the cheesiness was certainly there, and uh, we hadn't quite gotten to the, uh, the Adam West Batman show, but camp was starting to seep into other comics outside of Marvel, and it was starting to affect all of them. 1963 hits, November of 1963, with issue 15, the Jaguar is canceled. Yes. And the Jaguar ends. And and that at this point, the cat girl had even decided that she was going to try to become a hero to win over Jaguar and was almost like his fly girl. But we unfortunately only got, I think, two issues of that before we, before it ended and we weren't able to go any further. And in May of 1964, The Adventures of the Fly number 30 hits. And other than being the end of the initial radio comics run, this is significant because... It introduces a new hero. They went back to the idea of taking an old hero and refurbishing them. And they bring us the Comet. And now the Comet, who is in a red and white suit with a red and white helmet, comes from the planet Altrox. He's the king of the planet Altrox. And he has come to Earth 
because he's been watching Fly Girl and he intends to marry her. And they fly around together and they argue about whether or not she should go with him. And eventually he, uh, he gets sick of her back and forth and he's like, forget it, I'm going back home and I'll marry an Altroxian woman. And he leaves and that's it. That's the end of the Radio <laughs> Comics run. Hmm. But with the success of Marvel Comics and with the success of Justice League of DC and the Avengers and, and at this point the X-Men too were, were hitting and they came back about, I want to say almost about a year later. They returned with Flyman number 31. Uh, he's now changed to Flyman. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think his powers change too at that point because now he can grow and shrink Right, and but he's still the lawyer. Right? He's still the lawyer. Thomas Troy. Yeah, yeah, he's still Thomas Troy. And in Flyman 31, we have the Black Hood returning, the Comet returns, only now he's still in the same uniform, but instead of it being red and yellow, now it's like green and brown and orange or something. And, rainbow. And something. there's a rainbow helmet. Yeah. And it's, I, yeah, I don't know what they were thinking with the colors of that, but it is the Altroxian king alien guy from issue 30 who has returned to Earth, and the shield. Only, it's not Lancelot Strong. This is the shield that looks like the original shield. Right. The four of them, with the Flyman, that being the fourth, the four of them unite because the spider is up to his old tricks again. And they go to take on the spider. And basically, this is the first appearance of the Mighty Crusaders. This is the first roster. Flyman, shield, comet and Black Hood. Although they're not officially formed (laughs) by the end of the issue. They're taking the bickering Marvel Comics thing to an extreme at this point. I don't know how long it's been since you've read uh, those first early appearances of the Mighty Mm -hmm. Crusaders, but having just read them recently for this, it was very funny that they just immediately start in on each other. Start in, yeah. yeah. The egos. Yeah leap out at you it was like it was like they knew we're gonna show you these are real people yeah yeah oh (laughs) who wants to work with these who wants to work with these guys (laughs) yeah you know it was like they knew that well uh, the avengers will bicker and yes the ff will bicker but the charm that was there was not with these guys they just they went at each other's throats for no reason i do recall all that Yes. And I, yeah, it's it was very funny. And also suddenly, randomly, and I don't know why, now the Black Hood, who has gone back to just black and yellow, the red color is gone. He's now wearing a cape right. and, and riding a mechanical horse named Nightmare. Yes. Instead of his motorcycle. Instead of the motorcycle, for some reason. Yeah, I, I don't know who thought that that was a good idea, but... Uh, for the first three issues that, that Flyman had returned, and Flygirl was still around as well... It was essentially team-ups. It was essentially these three books were the formation of the team. And they they hadn't settled on what they were going to call themselves. Mm -hmm. And I want to say in issue, I don't remember if it's issue 31 at the end of issue 31 or if it's in issue 32, the spider lures them all under the pretenses of a group called the Mighty Crusaders forming. And when they get there, they discover that it's the spider and he set a trap for them. And when they defeat him, they, they think, well, well, maybe that's not a bad idea. Maybe we should, mm-hmm. we should do that. But they immediately start in arguing again about what they're going to call it. And, and it's, yes. it's amazing. By issue 33 of Flyman, they bring two old characters from the MLJ years back, only now as villains. The hangman has returned, right. who has gone bad, mm-hmm. and the wizard has returned, mm. who is now an older man, uh, who, who actually looks like Mr. March from the early Fly books, really, with uh, with a turban-like thing on his head, on this mm-hmm. like pointy turban almost. And they're villains, and they've teamed up, and, and that really kind of brings the Crusaders together uh, and solidifies them. Now, I don't know if it was ever really fully explained what happened to the Hangman, why he suddenly flipped, but for a predominant amount of time, he was a villain in this yes. time. Well, he had a name that sounded more villainous. Yeah, he did. So that's why they went yeah. with that. And the wizard, too, because usually wizards are villains in yeah. most... Uh, Especially in books at that time. Fantasy yeah. books, right? Yeah. Now, I know, unlike Marvel at that time, who gave credit to writers, artists, inkers, letterers, 
They were not doing that. So no. Do we have any idea who wrote or drew those early issues? I want to say the art might have been, was it George Tuska? But I don't know who the writers at all were at that time. Because that art in the, in the Crusaders lasted for quite some time. And he also, whoever that was, also drew, I think, that chart series of The Shadow that Archie put out, who became a superhero. Not the shadow from the pulps. His art was very similar to, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, Mike Sikowski, who used to draw Justice League. No credit anywhere. No, I don't. I don't know uh, the answer to that. Yet again, another question for our fans out there to clarify for us and go to our website or to our social media and give us the answer if you know the artists of those uh, of those early books. Because you're right, the the Archie stuff did not credit people. No, and the very DC stuff did. very rarely yeah. credit. Yeah, Marvel was the one that started that. Right. right. Now and I then do. DC jumped on. And it. then jump. Yeah, they jumped in on it. Now I do know that later on. In the in the Mighty Comics run, they did start crediting, right when they became more and more like Marvel. Yes, when they became more and more like Marvel and started using the Mighty Comics logo, which was very similar to the which Marvel was very Comics similar logo. to the Marvel Comics logo. <laughs> At that point, they had an artist by the name of Paul Reinman, who was working with them. Might have been him. Much like how Stanley Lieber was now Stan Lee. Yeah, he was listed as Paul R. A R E. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and and Jerry Siegel by this point was working there, oh, okay. and he was listed as Jerry S E S S. Now, <laughs> I you know I have read that some people think that that's because they were making fun of Stanley, yeah. and some people think that the whole thing after the Flyman relaunch was lampooning Marvel, and some people think that it was trying to copy Marvel mm. and doing it poorly. I don't want to think that they were lampooning. Maybe they were. Mm-hmm. I, I like to think that they were trying to achieve Marvel and just didn't quite do it. Yeah. But, but it worked well enough that the Mighty Crusaders got their own book yeah. in uh, November of 1965. And it was at that point that they introduced who would become their, their primary nemesis, the Brain Emperor. Oh, yes. He was, he was kind of the, the guy. And... Again, we'll get to this in future episodes, but he's kind of the guy that comes back over and over again in some form. He's their their Doctor Doom, if mm-hmm. you will. But they also started doing things about retconning the history, where DC at that point was starting to say that anything prior to Showcase Number 4 took place on a different world. They weren't doing that. They were retconning. And it was at that point that they said that this new shield that was running around was actually the son of the original Joe Higgins shield. And that the original Joe Higgins shield was turned to stone at the end of the 40s by a villain known as the Eraser. Mm. Now, why why you're called the Eraser and you turn people to stone, I, I don't understand mm-hmm. the correlation, but that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's what they called him. And uh, and now his son, Bill Higgins, was the new shield. Oh. And he's he's the shield pretty much throughout the Mighty Comics run. I think that the but he looks uh, just like he him. looks just like him, right? Exactly like him. The red hair and mm-hmm. and the same exact suit that Joe later switched to with the blue mm-hmm. trunks, and I think it was at that time too where they started to retcon the comet, and I don't think that they necessarily were connecting him just yet to the original comet, but I think they started saying at this point that he was not from the planet Altrox, that he was human. So I don't think that they had quite said he was the original John Dickering, at least not in anything that I have seen, but that was certainly coming in future relaunches. Now, the, the Mighty Comics thing hit the top when Mighty Crusaders number four came out. That was, that was the pinnacle. It's the most famous Mighty Crusaders comic of all time, I think. Uh, uh, you know, I think most people would agree. Mm-hmm. And it, it was titled... Too many superheroes. <laughs> it was almost like they didn't want to take the time that Stanley had done in introducing people. They didn't want to take the time that Julius Schwartz was doing over at DC and introduce people. They just knew they had to get a lot of characters out and there catch up. and catch up fast. Mm-hmm. So in this one book, <laughs> get ready. They bring back Steel Sterling, The Web, Blackjack, Mr. Justice, The Fox, Inferno, Captain Flag, 
Firefly, Bob Phantom, Fireball, Jaguar, Zambini, Kardak, Dusty, Roy, the Superboy, and two different versions of the Wizard as well as the evil Hangman. They all are in the one issue plus your regular cast of Mighty Crusaders. Hmm. Yeah. Some of those probably should never have been brought back. <laughs> probably, yeah, at least not in the way that they did, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I recently reread that issue, too, because it's so much fun. By this point, you know, these these heroes are coming out of retirement because they think the idea of the Mighty Crusaders is fun and cool, and they want to be a part of the team. But when they go to meet with them, what are they doing? They're arguing <laughs> about nothing. Uh-huh. And and it was, I think, an argument that was started by the S.H.I.E.L.D. giving a backhanded comment to the Black Hood or something. And and then all these heroes show up, and they're all like, oh, we can be better than you guys. And then they all start arguing. And, and it almost becomes a free-for-all. And the Wizard and the Hangman attack. And they can't defeat him. They can't stop him. <laughs> I could be wrong, but if I remember correctly, I think it was Mr. Justice who somehow pulls the wizard and Roy the Superboy and Dusty, I think, Mm. from the past, from the 40s, and brings them to now so that the wizard can talk some sense into his future self and stop it, and he succeeds. And then they go back. Now, why why didn't the wizard, when he went back, if he knows he's going to go evil, why didn't he (laughs) stop himself? Why didn't he just change the history? I guess they weren't thinking about uh, that but uh, and eventually everybody leaves and nobody joins the team <laughs> but it's a very fun issue and if any if any of you can get a, get your hands on it or or check it out if you like books that have a lot of superheroes this was almost mighty comics way of saying okay dc you do your jla jsa crossovers we're going to double down and give you everybody in one book and it doesn't work but it's fun by september of 1966 flyman ends with issue 39, and I want to say sometime earlier that summer, The Mighty Crusaders ends with issue 7. It only lasted seven issues. And Flyman becomes Mighty Comics Presents, starting with issue 40, which is basically just an anthology book. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's like a showcase book for various different... all the heroes and at any time. all titles. Yep. Printed all in one In monthly, one book. One, bi-monthly. Yep, yep. However they hit their deadlines, yep. Yeah. And uh, they don't have to worry about their continuity. They can just tell stories. They don't have to try to keep up with Marvel and DC. And, of course, that doesn't quite work out either. And by September of 1967, Mighty Comics number 50 comes out. And that's it. And that's the end of the Mighty Comics era. And the characters go back into the vault, Mm -hmm. as it were. And that's where we ask you, were you a fan of the initial revival era of the MLJ characters? And if so, what characters were you most impressed with? Go to our website at mybigfatpolis.com, fill out the contact form, and fill us in on all the details. A Mighty Influence. So we've gone through the history, we've kind of talked about all that, and uh, probably a little bit more detail than we even really needed to, but it's fun to talk about this stuff. The biggest things to take away from this is, and I'm sure some of our our listeners have picked up on it already, the influence that some of this had on books at the time, namely The Fly being the biggest one. It's pretty obvious that Spider-Man was a direct link to The Fly. Wasn't, maybe my history is off, but wasn't The Fly, the original idea was to make him a spider? It Superhero? was. It was. Initially, if if we actually go back even further to prior to Double Life of Private Strong coming out, if we go back to 1954, hmm. Joe Simon had actually pitched an idea to Harvey Comics about a young boy named Tommy Troy who becomes a superhero known as the Spider-Man, no hyphen, it's just straight through, mm-hmm. by rubbing a magic ring. So this is 54. This right. is way before. He looked similar to the fly. He had the goggles, and he had a very similar-like costume, only it was red and blue. Hmm. And I want to say that at that point, Jack Kirby was attached to it. I believe he he created the look. I believe he did. Now, I know that Kirby was attached to it when they later revamped the character 
and tried to sell the character as the Silver Spider. Right. Because the, the character kind of molded to that. By the time they got to Archie and they had picked up the idea, I, I've heard that it was Jack who decided he didn't want to draw a spider character. I don't know if that's true or not, but <laughs> basically by the time they had gotten there, they changed it to the fly. And when Jack had gone to Marvel and they were looking for a new character, he, as legend goes, suggested to Stan, well, we do have that character, the Spider-Man, that we could maybe try to do something with. Mm-hmm. Not the story that Stan tells. <laughs> right. Of mm-hmm. seeing a spider on the wall and uh-huh. going, oh, there we go. Yeah, I got a great idea. In fact, I think Steve Ditko even confirms Jack's story mm-hmm. in, in an interview at one point. He confirmed that that was what happened. Uh, so, yeah, so that's kind of the biggest influence. But, you know, the other influence in The Fly that I don't think many people think about or talk about is this was, I want to say, two or three months before the debut of Green Lantern, Hal Jordan Green Lantern, who is an Earthling who is given a magic ring right. by an alien race and mm-hmm. given powers to be a protector. Right. Whether or not that copied The Fly or it was a coincidence, I, I don't know. I guess that's debatable. The Fly is is surprisingly influential at this time in comics. He's not the only one. Characters in his book were were firsts. We we were talking about the the Anti Flyling, right? Uh, before, mm-hmm. I mean the the a few months prior to the Anti Fly League appearing, I think Superman went up against the Superman Revenge Squad. Oh right. But that was a team that started out as a team. They weren't individual characters that were mm-hmm. brought together like the Masters of Evil were, or like the Injustice League, or like the Secret Six, Six. or the Sinister Six, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's what I meant, Sinister Six. All of those ideas came after the Anti-Fly League. Mm. The Anti-Fly League initiated the supervillain Mm team-up, essentially in that sense, in creating Mm -hmm. a team. And it is a little surprising that, that the character doesn't get a whole lot of attention for some of these these facts. The other thing that the Fly book did before anyone else was bring back original characters from the 40s. When issue 7 came out and the Black Hood emerged in his red and yellow and black outfit, Mm -hmm. that beat Flash of Two Worlds, the famous introduction of the multiverse, by, I want to say, almost a year. Which, of course, you know, brought back the Golden Age Flash, Mm -hmm. but... But this really was the first time a Golden Age character was brought back, and it predated Captain America returning oh, by years, yeah, yeah. And, and and Submariner as well, because right. I think that was, what, FF3, I think? <clears throat> yeah, and of course the Human Torch. And the Human Torch was a different... 62? Is that the, the first issue of Fantastic uh, 61 uh, or 62? 61, I think it's 61. Yeah, November yeah. 61, yeah. I believe. That book really kind of influenced a number of major things, in in comics outside of that it was more how much they were being influenced by others Hmm. you know there wasn't a whole lot that they started uh, certainly not as many benchmarks as they had in the in the 40s with the original stuff Uh, one piece of information i did just discover is that in an early issue of the fly there was a panel drawn by a young unknown artist by the name of Neil Adams, Mm. who had, uh, I think at 17, had submitted art to Archie of various different strips and various different things. And one of the things that he submitted was a drawing of Tommy turning into the fly. I don't recall what issue it was, but whatever artist they had draw the panel, they didn't like it. And so they replaced it with his art, but he didn't know until he had gone to follow up. Oh. <laughs> and I think he was probably 18 or 19 by this point. But Neil Adams, the great <laughs> Neil Adams, essentially got his start hmm. working for Archie, for these characters on the fly. I mean, Jack Kirby, wow. Jerry Siegel, Neil Adams. I mean, these yeah. are some, Joe Simon, these are some big names. I think Frank Frazetta. Also did some drawings. I'm sure he did. He he was a stable, you know, artist at, at a lot of the companies at that time. I'm sure he did. It's amazing to me the connection and, you know, sorry for the bad pun, but the impact that that mm-hmm. these characters have on the industry still today, sure, but, but especially at that time, that no one seems to 
to fully know, and probably because they've never quite caught on. Right. So now with with that other stuff, with the with the relaunch, um, and after they started to be influenced more by Marvel, by by trying to infuse real life issues and and real life problems. I mean, the web was a henpecked hero, and they actually called him that, the henpecked hero. <laughs> now, with all of that, while you were reading Marvel comics, had you stuck with them? As you you had started with them, you said, but did you stick with them when Marvel influenced? I believe I I oh boy, this is a long time ago. I believe I did though, because I was I was starving for comic books mm. and uh you read most of the dcs all the marvels a new one came along and boy mighty crusaders yeah i bought them i read them yeah i kept them but i can even remember at that age thinking yeah these are some neat heroes but they're not doing as good a job yeah as marvel you know and i did that with other companies too I mean, the, the gold key superheroes and the uh occasional Dell superheroes and uh, a few other tower comics and, and these others that were creating superheroes. I bought them all. And, but they were all like they second had all stringers kind of, yeah. compared to, it was like nobody could compete with what was going on at Marvel or DC. Retrospective review of the Mighty Comics line. Well, like we did uh, on our previous episode, we'll do a real quick retrospective review, which we've already kind of touched on a little bit. Mm-hmm. But basically, we like to answer for people, where, where can you read these books? Where can you find these books? Uh, how attainable are they? Unlike the early MLJ stuff, there's probably not a lot of scans that you can find online of these books. Or if you do, they're probably not legal scans you will probably have to try to hunt down the issues. There's a couple of trades. There's the Mighty Crusaders collection, which right. collects Flyman 31, 32, and 33, and Mighty Crusaders number one. Hmm. And then there's the Fly collection, which collects the first four issues of the hmm. Fly, the Kirby issues. Outside of that, there are a few issues of the Red Circle Blue Ribbon comics that are reprints of this era in the 80s. They reprinted some of this stuff. Uh, but but otherwise, you would pretty much have to try and track down the actual books themselves. So there haven't been any new incarnations since... Of, of reprints of this right. stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah nothing, nothing recent of reprinting mm-hmm. on these things. Now, finding them can be a little difficult, you know, checking online and checking in comic shops. When you do, they're not that terribly priced. I don't know how many you're missing, but I, I'm not missing very many, and I, I've i been able to pay 5 to 10 bucks a book for most of them. Except for, like, first appearances, first except, issues, yep. those jump way up. Yeah, except for the first ones. Those double, double Life of Private Strongs are tough. The first fly, those first four flies are pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And I think the first Jaguar, too. Is... The first Jaguar can be a little pricey. It's yeah. I think it's still under 50 if oh. you find it. Probably not in a in a nine point grade or anything, but you can probably find a pretty decent copy for under fifty. Surprisingly, that first appearance of the Mighty Crusaders is not much. Hmm. You would think that that would be more. Unfortunately, you would have to track down the books. Now, as far as is it worth it, I personally think it's worth it. I think it's worth every penny. You have to be a fan. You have to be a fan, though. Yeah, right. you gotta you gotta know what you're getting into with the books mm-hmm. because, as we said, that the quality does dip. Mm-hmm. after the Mighty Crusaders book gets going, unfortunately. But boy, those early ones are great, especially those early flies. And I don't mean just the first four. I mean, probably the first 20 to 25 issues of the fly are so fun, mm-hmm. especially if you love late 50s, early 60s style of, of adventure comics. You the know. short story, yeah. get to the point, wrap it up. Yep. The next story has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. It's just <laughs> another adventure. Which is the way uh, series television was back then. Yeah, yeah. It was easier to, to ingest, bite-sized pieces. You didn't feel like you missed something if you missed part of it. I say, yes, it holds up. I say, go out and get them. Just, just be aware that maybe the last 10 or 12 issues of the Mighty Comics run might dip a little bit. But mm-hmm. I say it's worth it. Well, that's it. That is our second episode. That is our episode on the Mighty Comics series. Thank you, Monster Kid, for coming and joining us. Thank you, Doctor. 
and uh, being a part of this and talking to us about the this era of the Mighty Crusaders. Mm -hmm. And thank you all for joining us for our second round. And we want you all to come back and experience part three with us in the next episode where we will cover the Red Circle comics line and we will witness how these special characters helped inspire one of the most iconic and I personally believe greatest stories in comic book history. So until our next crusade, stay mighty, friends. We have reached the end of this verbal adventure, but there will be more. Be sure to bag and board the knowledge you have been given in the long boxes of your mind, safe from the dust bunnies of memory. Visit mybigfatpollist.com for all of their four-color content and follow their social media pages to stay informed. And remember, the secrets of the universe are between the panel. I don't remember what the father's name was, but, uh, you know, the mother's name was Martha, ironically. <laughs> Why'd you say that name? <laughs> Why did you say that name? <laughs>